A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show. This week, I am delighted to have with me Dan McLeod, director of East-West Associates. Dan has a long history in the chemical industry and throughout most of his career has spent a lot of time working in Asia. We're going to have a great discussion today about doing business in China and in Asia as a chemical company and learning a bit more about what East-West does to help facilitate that. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. A little bit about my background, I guess a little bit more. Yeah, I've been in the chemical industry for better part of 40 years. Started out in operations and engineering and had a number of roles in the U.S., around the U.S. But in late 90s and 97, moved to Shanghai, was with Hercules Incorporated at that time. And we were building our first facility in, in China. And so went on to manage that effort. And it went there for a, a two-year assignment and stayed for 21 years. Wow. That's <laughs> a long time. 13 of it was in, in China and, and also covered the region out of Singapore for about seven years and then spent a little time in the Philippines as well. Mostly in an engineering operations management background, managed capital projects, had a little bit of experience running businesses at the time. For the last three years, they've been working with East-West Associates. Now, East-West started out in China in 2005, really working with manufacturing companies primarily that were trying to enter the market, or if they had been in the market and they were having operational issues. You know, performance improvement, needed to develop their organization, find people, something, also risk management concerns, fraud and corruption investigation, background checks, that sort of thing. So really a, a whole range of operational services focused on China. And then we've expanded beyond that into Southeast Asia in the last few years into Mexico and Central Europe. And so uh, in the last few years working with them. And we have a, a chemical practice that we've started up in the last year, and I'm running that. And that's really focused on China and Asia and our experience we've gained in those markets I've gained and the people I've worked with over the years there. Yeah. That's very cool. So China is obviously a critical market for chemicals, right? Both from an end-use perspective, but also a lot of growth. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I look characterize the market. It's a $1.5 trillion market. It's huge. It's larger than the U.S. and EU combined. And it has been growing. And so certainly when I was first there, growth rates were substantial, starting from a relatively low base, mostly in commodity and basic chemicals. But starting in the late 90s, you started to see more especially chemical investment. And for the next 15 years or so, growth rates on average of about 15% a year. So from a relatively small base, and now it's bypassed, certainly US and North America. And I mentioned especially chemical sector because Early on, many foreign companies, particularly Western companies, were going there to, to really participate in that space. More recently, the fat, last few years, those growth rates have tailed off, and it's now more in tracking with GDP, 5 to 6% a year. But that's still a very substantial growth rate. 
Yeah, um, given the, their industry base, it's still a lot of growth. Right. The industry's a bit different than other parts of the world, and it's a it mix between state-owned enterprises, which are very large, and in some cases, designated national champions, which are being promoted, and then a growing domestic private industry sector. And then, of course, Western or, or other multinational companies are, are playing there. So, so it's a little, little different. Very fragmented marketplace, although that's changing a significant amount of industry consolidation in the last three, four, five years, but it's still relatively fragmented and still relatively immature from a market standpoint. And uh, another change, I guess, that's different from other industry in China is there's very little export from China to the rest of the world in chemicals, but it's not a major part of what they do. It's really primarily for domestic consumption. And if you go back 15 or 20 years, there's significantly more import into the country than there is now. It's really becoming a much more self-sufficient industry. And so you, you see U.S. and European companies, they do export into China, but it's, it's a much smaller fraction of the industry than it used to be some years ago. And that seems to be by design, obviously, for China, which is, I guess, a great opportunity there, but also a challenge for all of the businesses. And if I think about the petrochemical boom that's taken place over the last decade in the North America, a lot of that product is destined for China. And of course, as China becomes more self-sufficient, it's a challenging, challenging to that market and to the producers that are hopefully depending on that or presume that they would have that growth there. Yeah, you know, no surprise to most people that the Beijing thinks about these things in, in long terms. And so the objective is very much to become self-sufficient in all strategic sectors in the economy. And, and the chemical industry is certainly part of that, particularly more when you talk about especially in fine chemicals and, and more cutting edge technology. That's really where there's an emphasis out of Beijing to become more and more self-sufficient in that. Interesting. So you guys do a lot of work, East West does, with Western companies that are doing business in China or wanting to do business in China. So given this drive towards self-sufficiency, what are the challenges for international companies that are doing business in China or wanting to do business there? Well, we'll start with one major challenge that's particularly impacted the chemical industry, and that's around regulatory affairs and environmental awareness. And it's not necessarily that the environmental regulations are more stringent than you've seen in the U.S. or, or Europe, but the, the enforcement of them in the last few years has been much more aggressive, much less of a collaborative relationship between regulators and, and industry. Whereas you know, five, six, seven years ago, if you had an issue, you could talk to your local regulators, you could figure out a solution to it, and you work towards a, work towards a resolution. Now it's much more inspect, shut down until you fix your problem, and call us when you think you've got it fixed, and we'll talk about restarting. And that has hit a number of industries, and it's certainly across the industry, but not just Western companies, but it, it has an impact. Now, with Western companies, generally your compliance your compliance activity is, is very strong, you get good compliance, and so it tends to be hit a little bit hard from a, quote, shutdown perspective. But where it really impacts companies in the chemical industry and, and cross-industry is on your supplier base. If you have key suppliers or domestic companies, and uh, maybe they don't have the the regulatory awareness or the compliance uh, statute, sure. then they're going to be hit, and that's going to cripple your business, potentially cripple your business. So that's from a regulatory standpoint, that's what you see. Interesting. And do you see that there's genuine progress being made? 
You know, and I think about the regulatory and I think about pollution and, of course, sustainability and all those things, the environmental aspects. So it's it to kind of improve their environmental profile. Is that what's going on? You definitely see that. You definitely see that in quality of life. The most visible and obvious one is air quality, which three, four, five years ago was a huge issue and much less of a concern now. Five years ago, everyone had an app on their phone that would give you real-time data on the uh, on the particulate emissions in the air, for example, and whether you were red or yellow or green. And you could see over just a period of a couple of years, that dropped down and you could see that you could actually see the progress on that. So yeah, that was one indicator. And so from a improving the environment there, they've, they've made the progress. It's the challenge is really around the relationship between regulators and industry. And it sounds like it's a bit more animosity versus collaboration. There is. Interesting. What else? What other challenges do you see international companies well, having yeah, in doing business there? Any manufacturing companies have been concerned about, you know, cost in- increases, cost of labor, the cost of right. energy, and it's grown. And in the chemical industry per se, it's typically not a labor intensive operation. So the cost of labor is not a huge driver on what people do. However, many people find chemical or especially chemical sectors their customers are being impacted by that. For example, you know, the textile industry. Uh-huh. A lot of textile manufacturers, leather manufacturers, they're leaving China. They've left China. They've gone someplace else. Where are they going? Well, primarily to Southeast Asia. Really, they're focused on low labor costs. See, in, in the textile industry, you see a lot into Vietnam. That's now. And in both of those countries are really trying, because they've established a garment sector, where it's a high labor, they're also trying to move, trying to move upstream of that and move the textile sector. So chemical companies are finding that in some cases, their customers are leaving or being impacted more than they are per se by, by cost pressures. Another area that has certainly been a concern for many years, an improvement's been made, but it's still a long ways to go, is around IP protection. Now, currently, there are IP, there is IP protection, and the courts will listen to foreign companies when they bring suits, and they will award in favor of foreign companies if there's an issue. The, the problem with that is generally the, the restitution, the, the penalty to someone who's appropriated your technology is, is not sufficient enough to discourage them from continuing or to start in the first place. The legal recourse is better than it used to be. But there's still not enough of a disincentive to do that. Yeah, that's been a hard area for a long time, right? So just the lack of IP protection and enforcement and then the dilemma, particularly, you know, a lot of chemicals, there is a lot of proprietary technology that goes into it, into the manufacturing processes, et cetera. So exposing that IP, that know-how, et cetera, is always a concern. And I've worked with some companies that are pretty tech-heavy and technology licensing and elsewhere. And they have to think twice as they enter the Chinese market in terms of, because it's an attractive market in many, many ways. And yet it's also a challenging market in terms of defending your own position. The sort of the rule of thumb that, you know, I've heard over the years for, you know, Western company, when they're thinking about bringing newer technology in, is that maybe we can protect it for five years. It's Mm. unlikely we'll be able to protect it any more than that. So, you know, that's how you weigh it. If we think the payoff and the risk of losing it after five years is, is still going to pay off, then, then okay, we bring it in or we don't. We figure yeah. out way around it. Yeah. Interesting. So obviously, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about previously is 
that there also seems to be pressure on a lot of, at least some of the smaller, more established chemical operations are being forced to relocate. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. You know, as the industry grew, you know, say starting in the 25 years ago, it grew. A lot of people jumped in. A lot of entrepreneurs jumped in. You know, I was involved in in an acquisition of a of a chemical company that the owners came from the motorcycle business, and they had money. They had no experience in the chemical industry, but it it seemed to be a place where they could make some money. So there, a lot of people jumped in without necessarily a lot of background. And where they located, well, it was a variety of industrial zones. Some focused on the chemical industry, but much of the industry, particularly the smaller players, moved into sort of general purpose industrial zones. And those sites did not necessarily have the infrastructure in terms of wastewater treatment or energy energy supply that you would need in the industry. Often they were sited in basically urban sprawl, began to uh, approach them. So those sites were inappropriate. And so starting about five or six years ago, the Beijing started to look at both consulting industry and moving forcing companies to move into uh, specialized chemical parks. And that sounds like a good idea from an environmental and a safety standpoint. The difficulty is, okay, now you've got companies that are in the wrong location. And many times, these many Western companies find that facilities that they had purchased, maybe they had purchased a, a local company. Now they were, and, and it operated, they'd taken out the operation. Now they were faced with having to relocate. You don't get your relocation expenses uh, fully reimbursed. You can negotiate something typically, but it usually doesn't it doesn't cover the costs. And so now recently they've been faced with those costs and decisions whether uh, whether to move and where to move. And your options are limited. At the time, you know, again, say you have to go to a chemical zone, a chemical park. At the same time, the government has acted on the, the poorer performing parks and closing those down. So there's a shrinking supply of those zones. Interesting. Huh. And the ones that are remaining and the ones that are run professionally and run well, they can be more choosy in who they allow to get in. And so what you see is the the more well-established, well-run professional zones, larger ones that would be very attractive to Western companies, the price of entry has is, is got to be very high where they're really not interested in many cases, they're not interested in projects that are less than 50 to, or over $100 million dollars. So the small to medium-sized specialty chemical company that's trying to find a place to set up shop now, they're, they're really struggling. and they're That's getting, interesting. So they're getting squeezed out of it. Getting squeezed out of it, yeah. And then what, are they establishing themselves elsewhere? Are they simply it's shutting everything. down? What is it that you see? And I know you get involved in some of this. It's a combination. There's some people just walk away from you know, the operation. Most don't because the market is so large. But they find themselves having to move further away from the major population centers than they'd like. And you can find professional well-run zones further west or further north from the economic centers in East China, Shanghai, the Yangtze River Delta area. But you have to go further away. It's harder and harder to find appropriate siting closer to, to that economic center. How is the industrial logistics infrastructure in China these days, right? So, I mean, if, if you're moving... For a long time, part of the central centrality of locations also had to do with the infrastructure and the logistics of moving products. Is that still an issue? Has that improved? It's, what are it's, you guys seeing? It's certainly improved over the last 10 years or so. Highway system is well-developed. And then 
the major waterways, uh, rivers have, have always been used to transport. The Yangtze in particular has always been used for transportation. So that's pretty well established. So if you've got operations in the West, that even as far as Chongqing, for example, all the way in the Southwest, you can still move product by, by river to the major, to Shanghai and the ports. Rail is not used much for freight. The rail system is primarily passenger service, and they've got an excellent transportation rail system that most people have heard about. But very little of that is used for freight. So it's mostly large river traffic or roadways, and it's improved substantially. And the port system for import or export is very large, very busy, but very sophisticated. So that works quite well. We'll be right back. Support for this episode comes from ChemDirect. ChemDirect is an all-in-one commerce platform to buy and sell chemicals online. Shop online to get products in days instead of weeks at a highly competitive price. If you're a supplier, you can launch a fully resourced digital channel for free. Now, we all know that digital is getting more and more important in chemicals, and that's something we discuss regularly on The Chemical Show. ChemDirect is here to help make it happen. Head on over to chemdirect.com to check them out and use the code CHEMSHOW20 for a 20% discount on your first order. How has COVID impacted doing business there? So I know, you know, China had some of the first impacts. They took a hard shutdown line in a lot of the regions and at the ports and stuff. And so, you know, here we are. 12, almost 18 months later, how has that played out for businesses in China and for businesses trying to perhaps grow or move or just do business in China? It's uh, Well, there was a, a period of about three months where a lot of the economic activity just sort of shut down. And fortuitously, it was around the Chinese New Year holiday where not much happens anyway. And so by probably April of last year, May of last year, things were beginning to get back to normal domestically. And so companies were back in business and they, they ramped up. It took them a bit more time than normal because people weren't allowed to travel as easily, but that, that sorted itself out before the summer, certainly. And so economically, you know, manufacturing and industry, things got back to normal by last summer. A real challenge has occurred and, and continues, particularly for you know, multinational Western companies working there. Western management technical staff, they can't get in. Typically, there was a a lot of back and forth with, you know, whether or not it was management expertise or technical expertise going into support or vice sure. versa. Your Chinese staff was going to headquarters for training and development and, and working with their colleagues and peers there. That's all stopped. And that's where really companies have really struggled to maintain momentum. So it's the status quo stuff, the, the routine daily operation that continues. But if you're trying to, to move the ball down the road as far as developing an organization, any sort of transformation of your operation, M&A activity, it's not likely a company is going to proceed with a purchase or an acquisition without a senior management team being get over there and take a look at things and kick the tires. Interesting. So while M&A has been heating up elsewhere, you see it kind of still slow in China from an M&A across chemicals perspective. It is. There's opportunities in the industry because things continue to consolidate as an industry. But it's been a little slow to rebound because people can't travel in and out. I mean, one of the things that we get a lot of requests to, to support due diligence activities because we get people in country, you know, whereas normally you might send a team over there for a week or two to work through some of the issues that, that can't happen. 
The other is uh, it's not uncommon if, you know, if there's a senior management change in a company, if you lose a managing director, a general manager, maybe somebody from another operation would come in and help out until you found somebody. That's not happening. So the demand for interim general management capability in country to be able to provide a stopgap and maintain business continuity, that, that's another area that uh, we talk to a lot of people about because it's challenging. If somebody leaves, you know, how do you replace them? Yeah. And especially if you typically replace them perhaps from outside of China, then it's difficult to get back in. Of course, that seems to go along with, I mean, I've seen certainly with some of the very large international companies doing business in China. Shell, for instance, has been on this path for years, trying to get more local management and local leadership there. And I know I think China itself wants more local leadership. So is this kind of a leapfrog opportunity for individuals and companies that are trying to establish that? Is, are the right resources there to be able to do that? Well, certainly it's created a, a situation where there's a push for more localization of senior leaders and companies, right. uh, multinational companies. And many companies over the years have talked about that and have made good progress on it. It's become a talking point for Beijing in that they have specifically stated in the not too distant past that that's an objective, that that's one of their objective is to, we want multinational companies, we want international companies, but we would prefer them to be run by local people. Mm. And that's a bit disconcerting for me personally, because from a political standpoint, China has drifted away from a liberalization tack that they were on for the early part of this century, and they've gone the other way. And there's a more command and control environment, a more top-down driven economy, and quite honestly, a local hire in a senior position can be influenced a lot more easily. And that's confidential discussions with party people. They'll admit that that is part of an objective. That is an objective. And that's a bit nefarious. That's a concern. And I think in a lot of ways, it's hard for Western companies to grasp, right? Because we've had so much independence. If I think about what how business operates in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and elsewhere that there's an, there is a separation between private entities and government and there's certainly relationships but it's not really internal influence so to speak. It's a different culture and it, you know it comes it starts with state-owned enterprises which are overtly aligned with the objectives of of the party and when you get into privately held companies those relationships are not quite as well defined but there's definitely a a desire to be able to to direct those private companies. Interesting. So, I mean, there's some challenges, definitely. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of challenges, and yet there's still opportunities, it seems. So, you know, what are the opportunities that you see, and how do Western companies ensure their success in some, doing business in China? I, I guess some of the opportunities, you know, some of the areas I see, uh, particularly those areas where related to as the economy grows, as the standard of living continues to increase, Things like personal care products, for example, are right. sophisticated. So if you're into that space, continuing to increase the opportunities, those businesses are still growing, and particularly higher-end applications of those. Packaging materials continue to get more sophisticated as you go through time. Environmentally friendly replacements for some older technology are, look very interesting. It could be adhesives, it could be coatings. There's literally thousands of coating, small coatings manufacturers or have been in China many of them solvent-based. And so they're being pushed out through, you know, various for regulatory reasons and be able to replace them with 
more environmental friendly technology is, a, is an opportunity, certainly. Other opportunities where about five years ago, China came out with their Made in China 2025 policy, which was really looking to add high value industry sectors. Really, it could be around electronics, it could be around aerospace, electric vehicles, battery technologies. There's about a dozen that were really targeted. So if you're in the chemical space and you're supplying into those industries, there are opportunities because the objective is to really make a quantum leap in manufacturing capability and technical know-how for the domestic industry. And so to the extent that foreign companies have some inputs into those industries that are needed to get there, they're going to be encouraged to be encouraged to come in and set up and, and produce there. We talked a little bit about M&A. It's been a little bit slow due for Western companies because it's hard to do due diligence, but there are going to be opportunities there. I talked about the, the environmental challenges, the more confrontational environmental regulation regime yeah. uh, regulators. And that's going to push companies out of business or it's going to stress them. And so I wouldn't say it's a buyer's market, but there's a lot more opportunities there. And for Western companies, if you're in the market, I encourage you to be more aggressive because certainly your domestic competition is aggressive in that field. Still, the domestic competition tends to be much more entrepreneurial, freewheeling, and willing to take risks. And so I encourage you to, to act before they've snapped up all the good deals, I guess. I think risk is always, it's, the risk profiles are different, right? I mean, I think across, not just across companies, but across regions. And I've, I've always had a belief in you know, dialogues with colleagues and stuff that there are some different criteria sometimes for doing business in China, what good business looks like in China, what the willingness to do is. So that definitely plays into that risk profile arena. Another area that maybe folks haven't thought about, but it's certainly something that, that I think about and, and talk to some folks about is, you know, the high growth rates, the 15% growth rates of not too long ago, you know, as your top line's growing, that covers a lot of problems, maybe problems in your operation. When you get down to growth rates at, at GDP rates, even though that's still 5 or 6%, there's not that go, go, go growth. And so the importance of having good operating practices, you know, whether or not it's good HR practices, environmental, but general process, be able to have a tight ship, being run, running yeah. tight becomes more and more important. And that's an area where most multinational companies excel. So maybe you're not seeing the big top line growth that you were years ago, but you're more than likely competitively advantaged versus some other domestic players if you've kept your operations pretty tight over the previous years. Yeah. You know, one of the dilemmas when I talk to companies about doing business in China and being competitive in China is around its cost competitiveness, right? So they say, well, they're not willing to pay. And yet, uh, you talked about the fact that there seems to be a desire to become a bit more sophisticated in certain markets, more sophisticated products and packaging and stuff. Do you see an increasing willingness to pay? Are they willing to pay, but they don't, you have to show them the value? Is there a different value equation that takes place to figure this out? Certainly, there's been a lot of educating purchasing agents over the years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I understand the value. It's still a hard sell. Value okay. is still a hard sell, but it's improving. And again, it's, a lot of it depends on the end market. And a lot of it, successful companies figured out a few years ago that they needed to work harder at tailoring their product offerings to the market. Companies that I've seen that have been quite successful have set up application and 
not necessarily R&D, although there's some R&D in country, but definitely on, on applications and formulation developed to target to a, a local market. Ones that I was involved with a few years ago is we had a development laboratory. We developed a lot of personal care products and we were a, lot, a lot of it was going into hair care. Not something I was terribly familiar with, but... <laughs> Which <laughs> anybody that's going to be watching this video version of it's going to know. <laughs> but, but basically is we had set up quite an applications lab there because the properties of hair were different in China than, or, or in Asia than they were in the rest of the world. And so we had yeah. to work really hard on reformulating the products. And it wasn't as a matter of sending the same shampoo from, from Western Europe to Asia and expected to So you really wanted to... And that's a pretty understandable, I guess, but it, across a variety of industries. Really taking the time to develop products for the local market is increasingly important. And so if you do that, it's a little easier to sell the value proposition. Yeah, makes sense. That localization, particularly when you think about the desire for self-sufficiency, you need to be self-sufficient within that local ecosystem. So that makes sense. Great. Dan, any, any other recommendations that you might have for chemical companies doing business in China? Yes, I do. Some were related to supply chain disruption because we talked to a lot of people about that. That's been a big issue recently in, in particular, right? A couple of things to consider. I mentioned environmental compliance as a concern and, and an emphasis there. And really, I think I'll go back to a point I made earlier. Really understand your supplier base, your key supplier base, and, and take the time to get to know who they are, where they are, evaluate their operations, understand the risk understand the risk of disruption because a number, particularly in the dye industry and the coating industry in the last five years, there's been a number of disruptions, companies shut down. And I, I hear from companies how they've, they've been struggling, scrambling around trying to find alternatives. So again, understand that supplier, look at it, expanding your supplier base on some key raw materials. And companies are actually starting to look outside of China and that they can import in if they're concerned about some key materials, if the sector is a little bit problematical, if they're concerned about looking ahead to environmental issues. The importing from other parts of Asia, is that what you're I'm suggesting? Primarily. And I've also talked to companies that because of the, the difficulty, I mentioned difficulty finding space for new operations, but also yeah. the permitting requirements become more difficult, more time-consuming. I've talked to companies that are looking at actually setting up operations outside of China to in part supply their China operations. So you'll see people going to, in particular, Vietnam now, not just for industrial manufacturing, but to set up shop to supply their China operations as well as for export because they can get into business faster and easier. And it's worth the extra logistics cost to, to supply into China. So that's another thing to consider. I always tell companies to really develop relationships with your local regulators, particularly if there's, if there's going to be a change in regulation, the, the local folks have a fair amount of leeway in how it gets implemented. And so to have that relationship and understand, again, what's coming down the pipe at you, what's coming down in the future, and, and how they expect to implement those regulations. I've had experiences where regulators said that factory I was working with, they were burning coal. They burn coal to generate their own steam and electricity. And they yeah. were told that they told they're going to have to change the gas, which eventually happened. But by working with the local regulators, they extended the timeline and made that transition a lot less painful than maybe a, a strict reading of the regulation would be. And then I'd encourage you beyond local, develop some contacts. And it's the large players in the chemical industry will have a 
a government relations office to understand. But the smaller guys, usually you don't. Usually that's too big an ask. But you can develop some relationships with companies that specialize in looking at the regulatory environment, what's coming down the road. Because very often the implementation timetable for these regulations is very compressed. And, and if a company's surprised by that, there's a lot of scrambling involved to try to do yeah. it. So to the extent that you can develop a crystal ball and, and be able to look out ahead using some resources, outside of resources, would be helpful for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you guys do, I mean, you've personally done decades of work in China, and I know that East-West has as well. So you guys factor in and are able to help companies in that way. So, yeah. We do a fair amount of, we do a fair amount of site selection work. We do a fair amount of relocation of facilities, shutdown of facilities, which is difficult topic for some people. It's a, you know, it's always challenging to shut yeah. something down. But from a regulatory and execution standpoint in China, there are special challenges associated with that. And we've got quite a bit of experience with that. And, and as difficult as it might be, if you manage it well, it can go smoothly. And, Absolutely. So Dan, I know you've been landlocked in the U.S. for the last 18 months or so. So uh, are you planning to get back to China when uh, travel I, I, reopens? Yes, I, I hope. I'm going to wait until the quarantines are less onerous. It's now 14 days in a hotel room where you don't leave. Yeah, that's no fun. That's no fun. And I've known several people that have gone through it. They've had to get back to their life. The timing of uh, the pandemic was you know, around a Chinese New Year holiday where many Westerners were already out of the country. So, you know, they were out, they got stuck out for several months and you know, they weren't allowed to get back in until first person I knew got back in in July of last year. He'd been away for six or seven. Wow. Away from it. Yeah. But anyway, when the travel restrictions are, are lifted, then yeah, I'll be back. That's awesome. Dan, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a great conversation. If people want to get in touch with you or to find out more about East West Associates, how do they do that? Uh, you can check our website, East West Associates. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn. Those are the two most common ways that people reach okay. out. To yeah. Fabulous. All right. Well, I appreciate your time here today. And I'm sure people are going to love hearing about your perspectives on doing business and chemicals in China. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.